We are a group of friends bound by our appreciation for liberty and good podcasting. Free-minded thinkers from all walks of life, our values come together with one accord to discuss the common culture and news of the day, along with whatever random crap is going on in our lives. Welcome to the Union of the Unknowns. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the program. My name is Keel Thor, and you are listening to the Union of the Unknowns. Today I've got with me Terry from the Canary Islands. Hello, Terry. Hello, everybody. Okay. <laughs> Terry's got his classic delay going. I mean, he's over on the other side of the planet, so I can't blame him. But uh, today we're going to talk about uh, things. <laughs> I think uh, we're going to explore some, have some movie talk. Things. Um, we were just discussing uh, Mel Gibson and his new film, uh, The, what was it called? Search for Peace or... The Sound of Freedom. Sound of Freedom, that's it. Sound of freedom. So that's, I haven't seen it. I don't think Terry's seen it, but uh, we're going to talk about it anyway. I believe yes. it's about. Well, uh, I'll give you a bit. Yeah, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. so I'll give you a bit of an intro. Uh, it's based on a true story. Um, I can't remember the name of the guy. Um, he was a uh, an agent for the. Um, uh, who was he an agent for? He was a Fed of some sort. I think it was um, maybe Department of Homeland Security. But he was um, he was involved in working at the border, looking at human trafficking and child trafficking in particular. Um, and uh, he wasn't very impressed with how it was being handled. So I'm just looking him up here. So if I'm get, I'll give you his name in a minute. Um, Tim Ballard. That's what he was, uh, and he was, uh, yeah, he was working as a special agent for the Department of Homeland Security on the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force and the U.S. Child Sex Tourism Jump Team. So he was 12 years doing this, uh, and he wasn't very impressed uh, with how it was being handled. So in 2013, he set up this uh, organization, which is now a charity called Operation Underground Railway. And the idea was to just go in with a team of guys and rescue these people from child trafficking gangs and human trafficking gangs. And uh, by all accounts, he's been quite successful. So uh, it came to the attention of this film producer. I think he might be. Um, uh, what they were doing was they were going into Colombia, focusing on Colombia initially, because there was a lot of child trafficking coming out of Colombia. So it came to the attention of this film producer, who, by the sound of it, is also South American. I don't know if he's Colombian. He got very interested and uh, um, approached uh, Mel Gibson. I, I think Mel Gibson might be the director of this film, uh, but he's certainly involved in some way, way shape, or form. Uh, uh, so they made this film, the sound, the sound of Freedom. It was made on a very small budget by Hollywood standards of fifteen million dollars. Uh, opened in about 2,000-odd uh, cinemas, whereas, uh, and it opened on July the 4th, 
on the same day, the latest Indiana Jones came out, had obviously had a mega budget compared to that and opened in twice as many cinemas, but this Sound of Freedom film outperformed it significantly on the first day. And on the first day, I think they more or less made back the 15 million it cost to make the film. And uh, the people who've been to see it, I've, I've seen reports and they've, they've said it's very impressive. It gets, it gets a very high rating on IMDb at the moment. Interestingly, the mainstream media film reviewers have been largely sort of sceptical and poo-pooing about it and saying it's the Guardian Review notably said it was like a QAnon-inspired conspiracy theory film or something. Yeah, so, you know, makes you wonder what, what agenda they've got at the back of their minds. Yeah, I've heard that as well, that uh, a lot of the, the left is yeah, getting angry about how popular it is and railing against the story and all that. And I don't, I don't know what, what could either you may not like the movie because it's a pile of shit. I don't know, but why are you getting your panties in a bunch over the topic? Maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's kind of like a a jealousy thing because the lefties control, you know, Hollywood and all that, but some kind of right. Yeah. It, uh, everything's kind of political now, isn't it? And everything has this political spin on it. And I think they see, I think they possibly make the connection, you know, oh, they're, they're going on about child trafficking over the border. He probably wants to build a wall and, you know, he's probably a trumper. Um, and so, you know, we know we're against the film. And it's, you know, because they, they definitely seems to be some sort of agenda from the left about wanting open borders and wanting to bring loads of sort of people from other countries into Western nations. Who knows what the, what the motivation for that is? You know, you, it could be something extremely nefarious. It could be just something as simple as, you know, they're trying to change the demographics to get more votes, but there's, yeah. there's some, there seems to be some agenda there. It, it I does think a lot of way. it's been driven, you know, from high up people in the UA are very keen on that sort of thing. The people in the UN are keen on child trafficking. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> well, possibly, <laughs> but they're certainly keen on kind of open borders and, you know. I, I, I've remember. I mean, there uh, was reading, a, there was. Not- uh, I remember reading articles about. Sorry. Uh, UN, UN um, troops and stuff wreaking havoc in third world countries and taking kids and stuff into having, you know, I, I think there was a story out of Africa or South America or something in a third world nation where there was a, a high ranking UN um, military brass that had a, their own little harem of underage girls or something. And that got blown out and, and then they say, oh, "Okay, we've gotten rid of that guy, but we're still we're still the UN. We're still running around doing our thing." And I just, you know, I see stories <laughs> yeah. like that, and I'm, That's you know, right, thinking yeah. any other con- anybody else that does that is like the entire organization is going to be completely flattened, and the people in charge of it are going to be held accountable, yeah. or you know, any corporation that even if if it's the people and on top of the corporation. 
have no idea what's going on on the, on the lower level managers are doing something really bad. It just destroys the corporation. It's not like they're going to, Oh yeah, we fired those guys, but the same people are still on top and we're doing our thing. Uh, I don't think that happens very often. Yeah. 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 But uh, the director of this film was saying that uh, 8 million, 8 million children a year worldwide disappear. Uh, and, you know, he thinks a significant proportion of those are getting trafficked. And he just, he had some horrible stories about, you know, what what happens to these kids, which yeah. I won't um, horrify our listeners and viewers by detailing, but, you know, it's, it's, it's as bad as you can imagine. Maybe we can put a link to that in our show notes. That would be good. Yeah, that would be good. So, um, yeah, but... Um, I plan to watch it if I've got the stomach for it. I think it might be. There are apparently a lot of uh, teary, teary eyes in the, in the uh, cinemas where they've shown, as you might imagine. You know, it's probably quite tough viewing, particularly yeah. as it's based on a true story. So um, right, and it, you know, when you, when you see again mainstream stuff, even the Wikipedia article talk about this. Operation Underground Railway, they, they have, they're very sort of somewhat skeptical about it and, you know, saying he's exaggerating what he's doing and, you know, that it's not really the, the underlying sort yeah. of uh, message is that it's not really that big a problem. We shouldn't really be worrying about it too much. Uh, even if it's not that big of a problem, why would you downplay the the obvious? I mean, every movie exaggerates well, I mean, could... and blows things out of proportion, you know, but. Why? Why try to downplay it here? In yeah, this sure. Well, no, they're they're saying that this cha- this charitable organization, they're saying that this charitable organization exaggerates um, the scale of the problem, oh, what they're actually doing. So, well, I mean, if if Mel Gibson uh, was the one who and interesting, there's a lot it, of uh, it's it's probably a pretty good movie, even just for that, because he's he makes good stuff. I don't think it will. Was actually, I, I think I've, I think I've, I've given you um, misinformation there. So uh, the director's this uh, Spanish guy, I think, who was Alejandro Monteverdi. Oh. So I, I'm pretty sure he was um, involved. Maybe he was involved in the production somewhere. You know, putting up some money. You know, he's very, he's very keen on these sort of uh, these sort of stories, isn't he? Um, and on IMDb, who? you know it all. Um, you know, it comes up with all these similar movies that you you might want to look at. Yeah, they're all Mel, Mel Gibson's films. <laughs> <laughs> Directed and co-written by uh, Alejandro Monteverde. Uh, yeah, what does Bell Gibson mm. have to do with this movie? I don't see his name anywhere. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe would... maybe he was just you know uh, promoting it, keen on it. Uh, hmm, that's weird. Wow, this the whole premise for uh, our show today is uh... completely turned upside down. <laughs> well, let's just say it's a sort of film that Mel Gibson might be interested in make to to make. You know, because it's it's a subject he's interested in. Talking of Mel Gibson. We were going to talk about some of his films today, weren't we? We were. Uh, so I guess this latest film, Sound of Music, or whatever the hell it's called, that has nothing to do with Mel Gibson, but we're going to ignore all that. <laughs> and we're going to do 
you know, I like I like Mel Gibson. Well, I like this. Now, now I've got I've got a I've got a I've got a I've got a connection. I've got a connection. Yeah, I've got a connection to bring us to give us the link. The lead okay. actor in Sound of Freedom is Jim Caviezel. Did you say that? Mm-hmm. And he was the lead in Passion of the Christ, directed That's by right. Mel Gibson. There you go. Yeah, Passion <laughs> of the Christ. That was I like. I saw that movie in the theater, and I, you know, I'm not a Christian scholar by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was a it was a good movie. Good acting. Uh, the writing was great, of course. The directing and the the uh, set design, and I and I really appreciate him having the the dialogue in Aramaic or whatever the they were speaking back then. Um, was I mean, it, yeah. Before I get ahead of myself here, um, yeah, the movie was good. I remember seeing uh, people in the theater just crying like grown like old men just bawling through these scenes because they're obviously uh you know very strong christian people and i mean and this is this is down here in georgia where the bible belt you know it's you're gonna expect that and they were but they were moved by the scenes and what was happening and i remember uh some people got up and left not because they were angry about what they were seeing but just they they couldn't handle it you know and they were leaving the the movie midway through. Yeah. But uh, and I remember um, stories around that time. People saying, "Oh, four people got struck by lightning working on the set and stuff like that." And there were all these uh, kind of. There's like a mythology behind that movie. I don't remember all of it, but uh, it was kind of interesting. But yeah, it was a good movie. I liked it. That was a cool decision to make it in Aramaic. I mean, that's. Mm-hmm. I suppose if you if you're a real Aramaic scholar, you'd <laughs> you'd be able to maybe get more out of the uh, out of you know the, the story. Yeah. You know, because a lot of, we talked to in the past on our pod about problems with biblical translations. So you know, maybe going back to the original Aramaic is is where it's at. Yeah, you probably you're you're you speak Aramaic. You're a native Aramaic speaker. And you're watching this movie and you're going, that's not how they pronounce that word. Oh, come on. This is, this is nonsense. <laughs> oh, he's doing a terrible job. That's not that how movie. it happened. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, was, yeah, that's interesting. I, um, the only film I've seen like that is the last temptation of Christ ages ago, which was also very, very good. So wasn't um, that a musical though? But I think the idea, I remember Mel, no, it's well. It's got a great soundtrack by Peter Gabriel. It's got a really excellent soundtrack, uh, which I ha- used to have on vinyl. Uh, but no, it's it's the same sort of idea, really. It's I think it was actually about his last temptation. You know, his sort of his sparring with the devil in the desert. I can't remember. It's a long, long time I saw it ago that I saw it. But um, I think Mel Gibson. I remember when he was talking about. The Passion of Christ. He was saying he wanted to sort of emphasize the humanity of Jesus and some of the things he went went through as a as a man, you know. So I don't know if that came across. I think it did. They they had scenes where he was, you know, 
thinking back, he would have flashbacks. I think um, he, he they were showing him hanging out with right. Mary Magdalene, and I think I mean I don't I hardly remember the movie, but yeah. You were saying. Right. I'm, I have to be honest. I'm having a lot of trouble understanding you because your voice is breaking up a lot over the uh, connection. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> well, that's no good. Um, I was saying that no, I think the... No, I his, guess it's recording all right, though, because it's recording at your end, right? Well, it's recording on the on the uh, StreamYard ser uh, servers. So if it's if my sound right. isn't making it through to you, it's probably not making it through to the StreamYard either, but I don't know. Oh, oh dear. Yeah. Hmm. We'll see how it Ten comes issues, out. Eh? All the best podcasts have them. Yeah. Um, and ours so is one. To, to obviate your technical problems, I'll... Yeah, <laughs> yes, of course. Um, obviate your technical problems. I'll talk for a bit. I first came across Mel Gibson ages and ages ago in the eighties, because as everyone knows, I'm very old. Uh, and I saw him possibly in one of his first films called Gallipoli. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, it was an Aussie-made film, by possibly by I think by Peter Weir actually. Peter Weir directed it, and uh, it's very good. Uh, it's about it's kind of like a cross between Chariots of Fire <laughs> and All Quiet on the Western Front because there's these two Aussie sprinters, of which Mel Gibson is one of them, and they're involved in um, the war, uh, uh, First World War at Gallipoli, obviously. And the, the, the whole plot comes down to the fact that um, they use these two guys as message characters because they're very fast runners, they're sort of sprinters who had a lot of success before they went to war. Uh, and uh, I think at the end, it, Mel Gibson is having to run to try to send the message that will save this other guy who's, his, who's, his, who's, who's kind of his friend and his rival. And I don't think he quite makes it in the end, not not to put too, do too spoiler much alert. spoiler of the film. But it was very good. And, I, I yeah, I remember thinking, uh, wow, this, this guy's a really good actor. You know, he's probably got a good future. And uh, sure enough, he went to Hollywood soon afterwards. So. I I have I'm aware that that movie exists, but I've never seen it. Uh, but I didn't. I don't think I knew that he was in it. Um, my first exposure to him was in um, yeah, it's very uh, Mad Max. But I guess that wasn't his first movie. Mad Max, yeah. Yeah, was, I've seen was, quite a few of his sort of um, mid-period films. Uh, there's the there's the one where he he sort of does he time travels as an airman or something in a in like a he's frozen in a pod or something and comes back years later. Yeah, it's kind of like a love story because he he tries to track down his his girlfriend that who was going to or his girlfriend or his wife I forget now. Uh, Forever young, I think that's called. He, oh, he's good in that. Okay. And then um, yeah. I really, really like, uh, is it called Conspiracy Theory? Yes. Is, he's the, like a cons crazy conspiracy theorist with Julia Roberts. Really good film. Not hearing anything from you at the moment. 
Yeah, I got. I I guess I locked up on me. You all speak. Um, yes. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Um, conspiracy theory, highly underrated movie. I must say. Uh, it was very uh, very good. Yeah. It's got Patrick Stewart in it, who is also awesome. And yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's got. I mean, it is. Um, it's like a. It's like a political thriller. It's a it's a good kind of drama, and it's got even these humorous scenes in it of uh, yeah. him being, being dragged around by the black ops CIA guys, and I mean it's uh, yeah it's it's a wor- it's a worth the watch. I'm, I'm I recommend it as well. And it's quite like uh, revelatory as well because it's um you know he's ba- he's basically an MK Ultra victim, isn't he? You know, he doesn't actually say that, yeah. but that's kind of no, what he is. Don't. He's and that's mm-hmm. why he's having that's why he's turned into this sort of crazy person who has all these conspiracy theory ideas, which mostly you know large a lot of it turns out to be true, of course, because yeah, you know his his paranoia was because they were out to get him. <laughs> <laughs> And and they were, they inserted uh, cool little uh, aspects of that MK Ultra thing. Uh, for example, he when he got nervous, he would rush out and try to buy a specific book. He would buy Catcher in the Rye, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Yeah, and, yeah. that's and right. That, yeah, yeah, that book uh, was used. I, I had some some something to do with that book was used in the MK ultra uh, experiments. And I, something, it was something along the lines of it would, maybe that was the book they would condition people to go buy uh, under certain stimuli. Maybe that was it. And so during their testing, so, you know, you could, well, I think it's yeah, whatever it was. I think what happened is it used to show up, uh, with a lot of the assassins, like uh, Hinkley, I think had it. Um, what was the name of the guy who shot? Was it Hinkley, the one who shot John Lennon, or did he shot, shoot Reagan? Anyway, both of those assassins had the book, and and one another one as well, I think. So there, there was some speculation around that this was maybe the book was being used as a trigger because obviously hmm. the character in the book is. I don't know if you like that book. I mean, a lot of people rate it, but I, I thought it was I, terrible. It's a real doubt. I need to read it. I need to read it. I haven't read it. Oh, it's, it's like yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I've, <laughs> no, I've heard interesting things about it, and I would like to read it. But I've got a whole pile of books I need to read. So it's just gonna. It's just one of one in a pile of a million. You know. I can understand if you're like a, a would be assassin or you know would be psychopath that the book might be quite appealing to you. <laughs> but for normal people like us, and I just, you know, I just found it depressingly dark. So, mm. um, and you know, I, I don't find the, the guy Holden Caulfield is the character. I think mm-hmm. the main character. Yeah, he's just, name. you know, I think a lot of people who are like loners or feel a bit disconnected from society identify with him. But I don't identify him at all because he's he's just a horrible, nasty loser. Hmm. Anyway, that's that's just that's yeah. my my opinion, I suppose. But anyway, so yeah, there, there was we speculation that it was kind of used in these MK Ultra things as well. 
Yeah, the, it was a, used in the in the movie Conspiracy Theory. They used it as a way to track Mel Gibson's character. And I guess we're giving away spoilers here, but right, when yeah. he got when he got really nervous and paranoid, he would go out and buy that book. He'd find the nearest bookstore yeah. and he would purchase that book. And they and the CIA would be watching the transactions around the city somehow, you know, how they do stuff. And whenever that book was purchased, they could say, oh, he's here at this bookstore. If they're trying to track him down, you know, oh, he's at that bookstore. He's yeah. buying the book there. And so, yeah. Anyway, it's a, it's a yeah. good movie. Scary. And it's scary got, scenario. It's a good film. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's got, uh, what's her name in it? Uh, the pretty woman lady. Whatever Ju- her name is. Julia Roberts. Yeah. Julia, Julia Roberts, Roberts is the yeah. female lead. He's kind of obsessed with her, isn't he? And that there yeah. is a reason why he's obsessed with her. I can't remember now. Yeah, well, and I, I can answer that question, but that would actually spoil the movie. So, oh yeah, no, no, uh, I remember now. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> um, yeah, good film. And uh, I've see also seen Mel Gibson in um, what's it called? What Women Want, which is a kind of comedy yeah. thing, and it's actually it's actually quite good. It's quite entertaining. Okay. He's very good at comedy as well. Yeah, I skipped that one. That, that was. <laughs> I, I suppose I should go back and watch it, but when that came out, and I don't know, it was. It's like a. It was a date movie, and I'm not into that kind of stuff. But yeah, you know, whatever. It was probably good. I, I just didn't see it. Uh, I I liked uh, the Lethal Weapons. Can't forget he was in. That was right, yeah. as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. They're very good. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Oh. Um. Now you reminded me before we started, which I'd forgotten, that he directed Braveheart. Was that the first film he directed? The first big film he directed? I doubt it, but it could be. I mean, certainly that was the the one that he. Uh, I mean, it was just uh, just a banging at the Oscars. I mean, it won. It took home like ten Oscars that year. So I mean that that was the his first super it's- huge movie. Yeah, it's very, very good. I have to say, very, very yeah. good, and um, you know, a nice sort of libertarian message of you know celebrating freedom. Yeah, and I've I've talked. Well, you're I'm not. You're, I've I've talked to a, a couple. Yeah. We don't get a whole lot of Scotsmen over here, but I have met and have uh, a friend of one or two, uh, and and you know they always I always in my head think that as a Scotsman and you're in America, you're, you prepare yourself for the many times when an American talks, tries to talk to you about the movie Braveheart. I'm sure that's a thing that just, you know, they always have to, and, and, but you can't, you can't, you know, as an American, if you're hanging out with a Scotsman, you can't not bring it up at some point. I mean, you just, you wait long enough and you think the timing is right. And then you say, Hey, what did you think about the movie Braveheart? And the responses I've gotten <laughs> have been pretty positive, actually. You know, I would imagine that they would say, oh, that's a pile of shite, you know, or, you know, whatever they would. Uh, but it's, they, you know, they usually say that it's, you know. Good accent. Well, nice, nice effort. <laughs> <laughs> it's, they, they, they respond that <laughs> it's, uh, you know, not realistic, obviously. But uh, and they always complain about Mel Gibson's accent. But they say it was a good movie, you know, overall. And then, 
you know. I thought it, I, I, I've got a bit of an ear for the Scots accent, you know, having a Scottish wife. I thought his accent was decent, actually. I didn't think it was all that bad. Good effort. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, in my experience, the Scots love that film. You know, I've met a lot of Scots and they're, they're Scott, uh, English-Scottish relationship is very interesting, and I have to say that in my experience, a lot of Scots have a bit of a, a bit of a problem with it. You know, like um, like they're always going on in America about reparations. Scots are yeah. always going on about the English and how they've been oppressed by the English all the time, and you know they want to blame all their problems on the English, even though they've got more or less independent. They've got sort of quasi independence now. They've got their own government, but they still want to you know put all the blame on the English. So. They uh, and my wife would, would agree with it on me on this. By the way, she thinks they've got a bit of a chip on their shoulder about the English. So, um, so yeah, that a film that shows the Scots defeating the English. They just they lap that up. They just love it. Yeah, yeah. I think the Irish are probably in the same boat there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I would say so. <laughs> in fact, the rest of the British Isles, really, all the rest of the British Isles like to put one over on the English. Right. Uh, yeah, but uh, Braveheart for a long time was probably my favorite movie, and there was—I mean, it had a, a regular oh, really? rotation, regular rotation in my VHS player when I was a teenager. Just you know, it, it's just—it's just awesome. I, lo- I I do love that movie. I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie, but you know, I can't I can't watch that and not get teary eyed scenes you know what it's really just when i see big heroic movies that are well done i mean shitty ones are not gonna evoke such an emotional response from me but big good movies that show somebody fighting against clear tyranny and you know just yeah that that does it for me yeah yeah that seems to be a, th- a theme with him doesn't it because uh We'll come on to the Patriot in a minute because you've seen that and I haven't. But yep. um, I'm just looking him up on IMDb, and the first film he directed, first big film, was The Man Without a Face. Oh uh, yeah. Now is that the one? I can't remember that one. Do you remember? He seen was. That? I oh, didn't yeah, see no, it. I do but, remember it though. Yeah. But I remember. Yeah, he was a teacher or something, and he had a deformity, and there was this. That's my impression. Right, yeah. Yeah. The tra- from the trailers, I remember he uh, he kind of had a stick up his ass about it and always assumed everybody j- only saw him for the thing on his face. And then there was a kid that changed his yeah. mind or something. Yeah. There's a heartwarming twist to it. I don't know. Something. Yeah, I've, I've only seen it once. I don't really remember it at all. So. Um, but a hmm. decent start, a decent effort for your first start, yeah. I think. Um, I thought he directed the Patriot, but apparently he didn't. Then Patriot was okay. I, I, I didn't. It, it's probably better than I, than I think it is, because I went into it thinking, "Hell yeah, this is going to be Braveheart set during the American Revolution, and that it's just going to be." Awesome. That's what I thought it was. Yeah, but it, yeah. it kind of isn't. I mean, it is sort of, but. You, if you watch it going into it like that, I don't know. It, it's it's not nearly as good as Braveheart is, um, but it's all right. I mean, it's got a lot of cool uh, action from that time period. Um, but I don't know. I think it. I don't think it was 
Sorry, I've lost you there for a bit. You're still there, Kill. I've lost you My completely. Back. Ah, there you are. <laughs> Sorry, I missed I missed I missed that last bit. You you froze up completely. Well, I was saying you're talking about the that... Patriot, you were saying it's okay, but yeah, it was okay. Uh, yeah, you can't go into it thinking it's going to be Braveheart set during the American Revolution. I think that is kind of how it was marketed. Um, but it, the writing wasn't as good. It wasn't. It just wasn't as good of a movie. And but it did have some good, you know, action scenes from that time period. You know, the you got the the redcoats lining up on the big field and you got the Patriots lining up on a big field. And then you got the cannons blasting across and they're running into it. The lines are running into each other and stuff. And so in that regard, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like Braveheart, but you know, on the other hand, uh, there were uh, kind of stereotropic, you know, uh, actors in it that had roles that, I don't know. They were were kind of kind of fell flat on me. The main bad guy, I can't remember who that actor's name is, but he kind of always plays the same bad guy. And I don't know. It it, it could have been <laughs> done a lot better. And but you know, it's it's worth watching. It's a, it's not a bad movie. I'll, you know, despite my uh, gripes about it, but um, it was still good. Yeah. Um, I'll, I want to bring up the fact that um, one of the reasons, obviously, we're, uh, and I'll, I'll link it back to the first film we'll talk about in a minute, because Mel Gibson did the final editing of Sound of Freedom. I've just looked up here, and he has endorsed the film as well, saying it's very good. You know, he wants people to watch it. Uh, and one of the reasons that I find him interesting is this, you know, he does sort of talk a lot about the fact that Hollywood is a sort of uh, a web of uh, pedophilia and um, demonic sort of worship. And uh, that's obviously led to him getting a lot of um, flack from mainstream media. You know, you call him a sort of crazy conspiracy theorist. And we know, we all know how that feels, don't we? <laughs> um, so yeah, I do find it interesting. I thought that was going to, I don't know if it's really affected his career because you would imagine that, you know the, the the part of Hollywood that is is into demonic pedophilia <laughs> might not want to employ him now, uh, and that might be quite yeah. a large part of Hollywood for all we know. Uh, so um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think he's been doing that much recently, has he? I'm just looking mm, at his he's been CV here on quiet. IMDb. Been a bit. Yeah, quiet, he had yeah. he had that thing where he that recording of him getting arrested, pulled over for DUI or something. And he started ranting about Jews and Hollywood and stuff. And then there was a recording of him. He got, he got some, he was close to being canceled at that point. Uh, And then there was a, another recording of him yelling at his wife at the time, ex-wife at the time. And there, I don't think that panned out to be, like a real record. I think it was like a, it was like they staged it, uh, but people got really upset over it. And that gave him some, some bad publicity too, but he doesn't seem to, to like, he doesn't seem to get canceled though. You know, he just seems to 
kind of keep going on right. as Mel Gibson. And uh, I wonder where he, how he gets that kind of uh, power, that clout or whatever, just retains it, you know? Yeah. Well, he's probably made a fair bit of money. He's been in quite a lot, a lot of hits, hasn't he? Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. Apocalypto, have you seen that? That was one he yeah, directed, it was, was and was he in it as well? Talk about or did he? No, 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 no. I've not it, seen it's it a, it, it's it's kind of like the Passion of the Christ, because uh, in regards to, it's very. Um, What's the word? Um, you know, like method actors get so into the role that they just stay in character the whole time they're shooting, even after cut has been yeah. yelled, you know? So his he had a, a couple of movies that are kind of uh, in that, I don't know, I don't know what I'm trying to say. They're, they're like the movie versions of a method actor. So he... Passion of the Christ, it was all very highly um, in it as realistic as we could probably ever make it, you know, because it's got the the native language, all the the accents and the the demographics and the the costumes and the sets and everything are supposed to be as real as anybody could ever think of. Apocalypto is like that as well. So it's set in pre-Columbian South America. And you meet all of these natives that are living in the, like the South American jungle. And there's these tribes and they're interacting and they're all speaking the old, the old South American languages like that. So that's pretty cool. Um, I've, and, and it's, it, it was, it's stunningly beautiful. The cinematography is just incredible in that movie. If if for no other reason to watch it, that would be it. Yeah, I've heard it's a bit of a spectacle. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then it, it also goes into. So you, if I remember, I've seen it once, and you know, I you actually might have that on Blu-ray. I don't know. I have to look in my collection, but uh, it it shows the local tribes, and you follow the kind of main characters they're pinning and then i can't remember what happens but they end up in like the aztec empire and so you're seeing all of these you know the the aztec metropolis and the pyramid and there's the shaman guy at the top of the pyramid and he's just sacrificing one after the other and throwing them down the the pure the steps of the pyramid and stuff and um Anyway, yeah, it's it's uh it's a, I mean, it's a good movie, but it, it's hard to describe it as a movie because mm. it's really you're you're watching this historic kind of moment in time play out. Yeah, it sounds like um. So, what's the message of the movie, or does it have one? Is it just a load of stuff happening and sort of you know, I don't sort see, of I don't know if they're experiencing it. It, it dealt with eh, it's been too long since I've seen it to for me to really comment on that but it, it just kind of it dealt with maybe uh, 
like just showing the you know how a small tribe could have existed somewhere for hundreds of generations or something and then get just wiped out in an instant by this larger empire nearby i think there was something like that going right. on mm. but um yeah uh, for years i have been hearing and reading about rumors that mel gibson was going to make a movie in the same vein as apocalypto about the uh the norse people up in you know viking times speaking the old norse language and watching them build ships and stuff and i've I've been waiting for that to happen for a while now there was a a movie that came out came out um last year was it last was it that long ago um but it it was called the uh the northmen oh yeah Uh, starring starring one of of the scarsgar brothers and it was Right. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm all into that Viking <laughs> stuff. And yeah, it's it's just yeah. You, maybe you couldn't you couldn't, you couldn't uh, plan a better uh, a movie to market to, to me <laughs> better than that. <laughs> I'm looking at his upcoming films, and I don't think it's got any uh, any Viking stuff. I'm afraid. I'm looking at his yeah. upcoming films on IMDb, so I'm sorry to disappoint you. Yeah, yeah, but um. <laughs> oh, and hang on! Dire- upcoming director. Oh, he's going to do the Passion of the Christ Resurrection, apparently. Oh, really? And he's oh. doing Flight Risk, and he's doing Lethal Weapon Five, which he's directing as well. All right. So, uh, this is coming from Wikipedia. Gibson has expressed an intention to direct a movie set during the Viking Age, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, like The Passion of the Christ oh, and wow. Apocalypto. He wants this speculative film to feature dialogue and peer in period languages. However, DiCaprio ultimately opted out of the project in a 2012 interview. Gibson oh, announced no. that the project, which he had titled Berserker was still moving forward. So let's see Berserker. it now. That's a good one. Yeah, <laughs> I know you're watching this. Good. So you <laughs> get it, get going. Maybe you could do the Viking, you know, uh, discover in America. That would be quite good. Uh, yeah, I would like to see that because that's a which, story that's not that's rarely told. Which we they, uh, we all know that really happened. It did. There is there's plenty of evidence. <laughs> I mean, there's mm-hmm. proof, really. It's not just <laughs> evidence. Yeah, 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 definitely. Well, there's Viking there's Viking runes found in parts of uh, the Northeast, aren't there? Like yes, New, there, New there was or a, someone like that. Maine, unmistakable, unmistakably Viking settlement found in Newfoundland. Uh, that's the the biggest oh, one. Right. Um, of Meadows, I think it's called. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's that's how it's spelled anyway. But there's that, and they, I think, I, I don't know if they've ever found evidence like real good evidence elsewhere, I think they found some trace that the, they were also on a different Island also up in uh, like the North Canada area. Um, But they haven't found anything substantial South of that. But uh, they, I thought they found uh, some, a stone 
with runes on or something. Oh, 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 oh. Somewhere yeah. up in okay. the, so, New England. You want to talk about that stuff? That's a whole other, different uh, conversation. That controversial. Yeah, very <laughs> controversial. There have been a couple different runestones found in various parts of North America that some people believe are real. Other people think they're hoaxes. Um, but there's not a lot of evidence other than that. So they're just kind of anomalies. And I don't know. I don't think they're real, but we'll see. There, there needs to be something else leading to that spot uh, before I'll buy into it completely. And there's, there's right. two rational, uh, exp- there's, there are rational explanations that are too good. Uh, that they are not real you know uh, i think the the okay. famous one is called the the kensington runestone and it was found in minnesota yeah yeah that's that's what i was thinking of yeah yeah that's yeah. what i was thinking of. but it was it was found in the midwest so it's and there's no like camp around it or anything buried in the ground it was some like the story goes a farmer uh cl- claimed he found it stuck inside of a tree that had grown around it and you know people at the time said oh hell yeah this is that that's great that's this is proof that the vikings were here and and because there's a very strong uh scandinavian presence in in you know uh minnesota and other parts of north of the uh, midwest and uh but nobody can like people that have examined it uh, have pointed out that that seems to be a mixture of um, younger and elder Futhark alphabets, which are the old runes that the Vikings used to carve into their stones to, to place markers and tell stories and things. And they've, it's the, the Senate structure. It isn't consistent with historic rune stones found in Scandinavia that sort of thing. So it's almost like somebody just carved it using a, whatever runes they could find in an old dictionary or something. Right. Yeah. You know, you, you do have to be a bit careful when mainstream academics poo poo stuff though, don't you? Because they, yeah. And, and I think it's important. to be some sort of agenda. Yeah. It's important to keep our mind open, but you know, to claim, oh, oh, this is this is it. I I, I take this the stance of, well, that's very interesting. Let's set that aside and keep it. You know, don't destroy it out of history. Um, but you know, so if we find something else that can link to it, then that'll provide uh, that'll that'll give uh, credence yeah, sure. to the the, the item. Sure. Yeah, but I mean, if if there were nothing else. I might agree, but you know, if if you're saying there's this evidence of a village in Canada, and they they knew all about Greenland, of course, the Vikings, and it's not a huge hop from oh, there yeah. to go from Greenland to northern Canada. And if they're in Canada, you know, they were fantastic navigators. So I think they would have yeah. gone down quite a lot of the oh, eastern sure. coast of the American continent. So you know, I don't. I, it's not a great stretch to think they would be. And and wasn't the Kensington one? Is it near? Uh, like the Potomac River or one of the big rivers. 
up there. No, so, the, Kensington, know, always... the Kensington Ruined Stone was found in Minnesota. Right. Okay. Deep, so, deep in the heart. No, no, no navigable waterway that could get you there then. Nah. I mean, you could maybe go into some of the Great Lakes through Hudson Bay or something like that and try to make your way that yeah. that way. Um, but, uh, and, and, and they're of course, like, don't, sorry, I was just going to say, don't tell the climate change people, but it was a lot warmer back then. So there would be a lot less ice around to navigate. So, yeah, no, I, I believe that they explored a lot more than they did. I think the, the site, the site at Lanso Meadows, I, I I read somewhere it had they estimated it, it had been there for about a hundred years uh, before the the peoples who had settled there got run run out or ran out of you know just couldn't sustain themselves. But um, yeah. I, it seems like uh, the they did they didn't stay there year round. It was more like a like a hunting camp. They they traveled to from right. Greenland. Uh, once a year or something like that. So, and, and I know that the Greenland settlement that petered out after, I mean, they were there for a long time, but they, you know, eventually they would have run out of enough resources to maintain that extra camp over in Newfoundland. Yeah. I know. Well, I think it was climate fun enough. It was, it was warm when they colonized Greenland. Yeah. Um, and then I think yep. it just got, just got too cold for them. So, uh, yeah. you know, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you you global warmists, but climate does get warm and cold quite regularly throughout human history. You know, sometimes it's warmer, sometimes it's colder. Yeah, there was uh, the climate change thing, and I've also read that um, the their main export in Greenland was uh, ivory from the walrus tusks, and there were. Others, really? uh, there, yeah. there began to be, and and yeah, because they found um, like trinkets and jewelry made from Greenland walrus tusks found in the Mediterranean and stuff. So there was a very long trade route that was Greenland was being pretty profitable at one point or another, but at some point the demand for for walrus tusk uh, went away because it was too expensive, and they had other sources of ivory elsewhere probably you know uh, elephants and stuff in africa that elephants, were closer yeah, yeah so oh, yeah. they they kind of lost their their trade income and people so people stopped traveling there and then the climate changed and they just couldn't keep it up uh, but uh which is a shame because yeah. having having a, a north settlement like that just isolated would have been a really cool discovery after hundreds of years had gone by and and then in like you know the 16th or 17th century people show up and there's this thriving uh, norse community all there, these right? vikings <laughs> yeah <laughs> that would be really cool yeah <laughs> that would be excellent it's like the lost world that's that's yeah. fantastic but so, i guess um, that's, yeah but, that's um, what happened in iceland though so iceland is yeah so is it widely accepted this that this camp was a Viking camp, you know, like by it, mainstream it, academia? Yeah, yeah it's uh, right. dated to about about one thousand A.D. 
So, so surely we should get rid of Columbus Day then. We should have Eric the Red Day or something. I celebrate Lee Ferrickson Day, (laughs) not Lee Ferrickson Day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, they well he might not. They might not have been the first. There's another theory that the the Egyptians actually knew about America as well. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if you know. Well, you, you think about the Phoenicians, the, these fantastic seafaring race that nobody knows where they came from. They, they were all over the Mediterranean. So, you know, mm-hmm. again, fantastic navigators. It wouldn't be that surprising if they managed to get across the Atlantic at one point. No, I I totally, I absolutely believe that the uh, Europeans were traveling to the Americas a lot more often than we think they were. Um, there, it didn't just yeah, suddenly yeah. happen Definitely. when Columbus landed in Puerto Rico. You know, it was uh, there. There had been ships traveling to uh, the east coast of the United States. Now, the United States, probably for hundreds of years at that point. I, I, I would speculate. You know, we don't have uh, much evidence, if really any. I mean, there's some. Um, myths and legends and things like that of nature, um, but we don't have a whole lot of hard evidence that uh, Europeans traveled over here and very very regularly until after Columbus. But uh, it is, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's fun to think about it. There's stories of the um, early Western, uh, you know, the official Western settlers. Um, like conquistadors and what have you, coming across, you know, tribes of basically white white people as well. So mm-hmm. where do they come from? Yeah, there's stories that uh, the Welsh had had come across, and you know the old, obviously, you know the old the obvious stories about you know, the the Templars and their winding up at Oak Island. You know, I love that story. That sort of <laughs> yeah. I love that story. Yeah. It's a good story. Yeah. Uh, but there's also speculation about the Chinese coming across uh, from the Western side and setting up things over there. Uh, but we really don't know, you know? Yeah. And I think. I... People that just shut those theories down are, are bited, you know? Because yeah. you can't, you it can't be say more surprising it didn't happen. To me if it didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I lost you there for a bit, Kim. I really hope this is recording. Okay. Because I'm not hearing you at all at the moment. I'm never quite sure whether I should just carry on talking or wait for you to come back in. So maybe I should just carry on talking. <laughs> um, the uh, um, what was I going to say? Um, the Vikings, of course, were all over. Um, oh, we seem to have lost Kiel. Are we still recording? Let's hope so. Um, so uh the vikings um were all over europe as well and not just uh on the sea coasts where they were sort of doing their pillaging and raping and things but they sailing quite far up 
major rivers like the Volga. They were right into the heart of Russia. Um, and there's a lot of uh, the Russians from that part of Russia uh, have a lot of um, Norse uh, ancestry in their in their genes. So, um, yeah, interesting people. Did we lose you, Kiel? So I think, uh, personally, it's, it's quite likely there was a lot of contact between these ancient civilizations. And, um, uh, you know, uh, there's also stories of people finding sort of out-of-place artifacts, uh, you know, mainstream archaeologists, and it, it getting covered up. Famously, you send things to the Smithsonian, it'd end up in the basement, like like in the first Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sort of tucked away for no one to find. I've just been carrying on talking by myself because we lost you for a minute. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah my internet just completely <laughs> crapped out on me, so I've switched to a different source. Uh, I was just saying how Vikings were were all over Europe as well and sailing quite far up major rivers. So yeah, um, and even into the heart of Russia um, and Ukraine, I believe, uh, as um, quite a lot of Viking ancestry. It does. So, yeah. Well, you know, I don't know about the Ukrainian ancestry, but I do know for a fact that the Kievan, Kievan Rus were the, you know, the ancient, well, not ancient specifically, but they were the tribes back in the medieval time um, in that yeah. area. They were the first Russians, the Kievan Rus, the tribes that lived near Kiev. And uh, the legend is that they were, they had such a chaotic relationship with each other. They were constantly warring that they, and they had the, the, the Norse would, they had trade routes that went down through that area because they would travel through uh, the Volga river and um, like the black sea. Is that the sea that's right there? Uh, so they would, they mm -hmm. would travel through there quite frequently and they would hear tales about all these great, viking kings and all of their success up there in scandinavia so they sent word and asked for the princes of the viking kings to come down there and help them sort things out and so the kievan rus were ruled at least by uh vikings viking princes for quite a while and they they started the the royal bloodline that continued on through the russian empire and the up until the uh you know the stupid socialists took over till the commies shot them all yeah <laughs> yeah king uh yeah. was the the king there i think he was the the norse guy all right but yeah it's an interesting story i don't i don't know if the vikings came down and settled all in that area but certainly they the royal line was begun by the by the Vikings at that time. Well, they were, they were all over the Med, and um, like we spoke about in a previous show, you could count the Normans as being, you know, kind of direct descendants of the Vikings, really. And and certainly the Normans were were all, you know, conquered loads of different places. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the Normans, the the Vikings settled Normandy. I think that was part of an agreement between the current Frankish rulers at the time 
uh, it was uh, a uh, what do you call it? Uh, it? They they gave them Normandy so they would stop sacking Paris because they kept sacking Paris over and over again, <laughs> coming down that river, whatever that river right. Paris is on. <laughs> so they said, well, "Hey, the Seine River." They said, "Hey, come, you guys can have this whole spot in northern France. <laughs> Just please leave us alone." <laughs> And I think they were, they were there. They said, "You guys can have that land. Stop sacking Paris and kind of guard the uh, the the entrance to the river." Or, I think that's how it worked. So the Vikings were got uh, they integrated and became Normans, and then the Normans took over England from the Vikings yeah. that were already there. There's a move in. <laughs> From the Vikings, well, there were Saxons, so you could call them Vikings, I suppose. There was certainly from well, the, no, the, uh, Germany. The, the, so, the uh, Saxons, the Anglo Saxons were there, uh, and then the the Danes took over, so they had the Dane law in place when the Normans yeah, came I mean, over. And well, and only, yeah, only in uh, let me get my history right there. So, uh, the time of Alfred the Great which is maybe a couple of hundred years earlier than the conquest, I think. Danelaw ruled the north of England, but there were still basically the Saxons clinging on in Wessex, mm -hmm. which was the bottom sort of left corner, and also the bit below London. I think I can't remember if London was in Wessex or in Danelaw or if it was disputed. Right. So And the, the boundaries shifted backwards and forwards a bit, obviously. But then Alfred the Great was the one who, kind of unified England and kicked out the Vikings. And then, of course, as you say, in 1066, they came back again as the Normans and took over everything. Yeah. But um, <laughs> there's a kind of move afoot. I was going to tell you something. I don't know. I know you're very keen on the Vikings. I don't know you look at this. Uh, the city of York in the north of England has kind of rebadged yeah. itself as a Viking city, and they're calling it Jorvik. Yep. Which is presumably yep. the Viking name, and they're, they're making a big thing of saying, "Yeah, they weren't all about fighting and rape and pillaging. They were, you know, nice and peaceful, and brought a lot of culture and farming and all sorts of things, trade, you know." And so, how do you yeah. feel about this rehabilitation of the Vikings? Do you just like? Uh, I think, I think circus? it's, I think it's great. <laughs> um, I, I've been to York actually uh my brother and i traveled Have to you? london london for a week and on one of those days we took a train up to york and we got to experience the the viking stuff there because they have like a little museum and you they have a ride actually that takes you through this it's like a dark ride uh, like they would have at disney world um where you just kind mm -hmm. of sit in this car and you drive through these different scenes showing viking life uh back in the days when it was called jorvik uh, but yeah, it's, I really like that town. I mean, when I was in London, I always felt kind of on edge. Um, but when I, as soon as we got off the train at York, it just, I don't know, the climate or something about it up there just really felt good. York, um, but, uh, York's a beautiful city. Yeah. Beautiful city. Yeah. Lovely and they've cathedral got, as well. They've, yeah, they've got that old Roman period structure still sitting up the wall that's around it or whatever yeah yeah, um, mm. that's neat yeah anyway well we are about at time and i think we need to wrap this up uh even though i've got a whole bunch yeah. more i'd like to talk to you about but uh we'll have to save it for another time 
So, so Mel Gibson uh, to Vikings. We've covered the whole gamut. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. Perfect show. <laughs> uh, come, on. come on, Mel. Make that Viking movie. You know, it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, come on. I know he's a, he's, see it. he must be a listener, surely. Surely. He must be a I fan. Mean, we have millions of listeners. It's, there's yeah. chances are there's no way he can't be. Absolutely. So uh, we are Union of the Unknowns. You can contact us. Uh, if you're watching, we have contact information right there on the bottom of the screen. Uh, but we have a website, unionoftheunknowns.com. That has everything that you could want to, you know, we have emails and phone numbers and there's a Twitter. Twitter is at Union Unknowns. Um, you can also sign up for our newsletter, which is really awesome. And we've got we're on Rockfin, so you can see us there. You can see our bonus content on Rockfin if you're a premium subscriber there. Or if you don't want to go to Rockfin, we have a premium RSS feed through Spotify. And that has all bonus content and all sorts of cool stuff on there. So uh, if you like if you like this, you're going to love that. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. that'll do it. Uh, thank you, Terry, for hanging out with me today. And... Thank you, Thank listeners. You. We are the Union of the Unknowns, and we are out. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Union of the Unknowns. You can find new episodes every week on all your favorite podcasting networks. 